My name is Claire Press and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our love shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humor. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modeling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them go because everything is just fine. You are in for a treat with this episode. I love it. And I love these two. They're just awesome, awesome people. You're going to meet Kim Pierce and Catherine Davis, who run the Possibility Project, which delivers social justice programs through the mindset of social entrepreneurship. It's kind of a broad umbrella term, and it's really fascinating to hear exactly what some of that stuff means. But one of those projects is their women's wear label which is called Slumware 108, and they make it in Jaipur in partnership with the NGO iIndia. I'm going to keep this intro short because our conversation is quite long, but it's very brilliant and I just didn't want it to end. We discuss the politics of happiness, why we need to rethink what is possible, and how fashion can be a fabulous way to build bridges. Make sure you visit my website, clairepress.com, for the show notes, which will include a bunch of links and further reading. And also, by the way, if you're enjoying the podcast, I would love it if you would review us in iTunes because that helps people find us. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> it's always nice to begin an interview without recording it. That's how I like Get to do two. it. La, la, All right, la 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 la, we're warm. <laughs> I'm just going to say that whole shebang yeah, one more say time. It again, baby. I want to start with Alice in Wonderland because when I was thinking about possibility and famous quotes, this is the one that sprang to mind, and I often quote it on Instagram. Actually, it's from Through the Looking Glass, and it's that bit where Alice says. There's no use trying. One cannot believe impossible things. And the Queen says, I dare say you haven't had much practice. And then that famous line, which is, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. <laughs> and my question was, why do you reckon we've got all these hang-ups about what's possible and what's impossible? That's a great question. I'm going to answer that with a Lewis Carroll quote. The issue is with this world, everyone wants a magical solution to our problems and everyone refuses to believe in magic. And, and that's it. We have forgotten that we're magic. And you believe in magic? What's Absolutely. the definition of it though? Not abracadabra? Not at all. Not, not at all. It's about being creative. What we do, it's about being creative. This is magic for us to be speaking with you through our journey to, to be speaking with somebody that we so highly respect and love their book, you know, love what you talk about in this space, particularly of slow clothing, this is magic. 
So, you know, again, it, it's what is magic. It's, God, thank you. It's your joy rising. And, and that's we've become separated from that. And we don't think it's actually a cultural hang-up as so much as a universal hang-up. You know, human beings, we've forgotten who we are. We are here to experience and to live joy, but we're so conditioned to believe that we can't do things, that that anything is possible. Mm. If you truly have the intention, you can create it. We're really powerful beings. Yeah. That's and how energy in the universe works. We've seen this. I guess it's been heightened for us working in the slums in India because on appearances we judge what's possible. You know, if I was to throw up a picture of some starving child or some girl then I've told you she's been abandoned or orphaned or trafficked, you may immediately start to interpret what that person is going to be able to achieve and create. That is your perception of what's possible. So we're putting boundaries on Absolutely. the possibility because of circumstance. And we are so conditioned now to judge on appearances. And really linking to this is this sense that someone else is here to bail us out. You know, someone else is here to take responsibility for our problems. Someone else is here to do the magic for us. We are um, crippled by this sense almost that we are no longer responsible for the issues in the world or it's too hard for us to solve. And that externalises all of this um, ability to, to take control over your problems. We are working through our minds most of the time and the mind judges what's possible. Catherine and I work with our heart. It's that simple. And the heart... But if it was that simple, we'd all do it. I'm looking at you going, ah! Oh. <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing. We talk about very complex problems, simple solutions. And it, there's a lot of common sense to what we're talking about. And that's what we're forgetting. We're, we're forgetting about our common sense. And in that sense, it's what do we all have in common as human beings? We, we tend to approach particularly social justice issues by looking at our differences, men versus women. Rich versus poor, you know, your problem versus my problem. And we divide it all up into what's worse, what's better. We just want to approach something through unity. What do we all have in common? We all have the ability to respond creatively. Working with these amazing street youths, they have shown us it's not what happens to you, it's how you choose to respond. That is so creative. And so powerful. So powerful. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly is the Possibility Project? And Kath, I'm going to ask you that. Sure. Um, the Possibility Project, we're a social enterprise. We met on the school run and went to India together. It quickly became the Possibility Project. We support social justice initiatives anywhere. And for us, social justice just means how do we enable everybody to be their best, whether that's working in India or working with our youth in schools here in Australia, that that's just, that's what we do. We support social justice. We're going to get onto the schools aspect of it, but what exactly does your social enterprise look like in India? What is it that you do? So can you talk a bit particularly about the fashion element to the Possibility Project? Yes. So in India, we work with an NGO called iIndia, we met an amazing family there called the Goswami family and they work with street kids and they've been working with street kids for over 20 years now. We have the privilege of 
helping them in the area of their vocational training programs. So when we visited, Kim had been up there, but we I went with Kim maybe three, four years yeah. ago. And this was to Jaipur? This yeah. was to Jaipur and this is where the NGO is at and saw the vocational training facility that was set up there and thought this is something that we can really help with. And so at that time I was just wearing a, a string of, of fabric-covered beads, looked down and thought, hmm, this is something that should be easy enough to make. Hadn't thought about anything, but they were looking for work. And so quickly they were producing beads made from fabric and then quickly mm. our clothing label Slumwear 108 has grown from, from that first initial encounter. And I guess that's what we're talking about in, in terms of we're all given these moments and we bring to that judgments of what's going to be possible. So, you know, on that day we were... We were in a slum. We were looking at a lot of young people who don't have access to water, health, education. The girl that we were taught, well, through an interpreter talking to, she had polio as a child and was on the floor crippled. But she wanted work. And she in the corner, she had a sewing machine behind her. So we quickly found out that she did sew. And it's about putting, you know, what do we already have? That's, that's a part of it. You know, what have we already got to create what we want? And um, we have sort of created frameworks where we've decided, well, we need money and we need time and we need a business plan and we need, you know, um, all sorts of networks and that's going to stop you from doing what you want. Did you have any of those things when you decided to dive into this project? We had intention and that was it. To be honest, we had a shared sense of service or purpose. We had no, we had none of that. But we had gifts we wanted to share. Yeah, though. we wanted to. Yeah. Use we we our still gifts. don't know what this is going to look like, Claire. You know, this is we, we, that's magic. Magic. The beautiful thing about seeing a magic show, you have no idea how it's done. Magic. Magic happens. <laughs> I want to get into a bit more of the nitty gritty about how yeah. you work in Jaipur yeah. and also what you saw there when you first went there. But can I first dial this back just to understand a little bit about mm. how you guys began? Yeah. Kim, you've been to India before. Yes. So your parents were Anglo-Indian, but yes. you were born here in Australia. That's right. Yeah. Why did your family leave India? It was pretty simple. The British Indian and the British um, were leaving and so they knew their life was going to be pretty different. Most human beings, particularly with children, it's for the future. And that's how we operate. We operate for you know, a better future. And so they um, had applied around the Commonwealth countries. Fortunately, my father says we were rejected from Britain, um, came to Australia, and it was such a land of opportunity, and it still is. Mum and Dad had to sell everything, every single thing they owned, down to the sporting medals that my father had, and Gosh, um, for the medal. Yeah. So, and they never tell these stories with any kind of sadness or you know any grief attached to it. It's just a story. So they came on a lovely ship in those days from Chennai. From Chennai, was it Madras then? Yes. And a man got hold that he was this young man with his young wife who thought she was seasick, but she was actually morning sick, two little boys, and he decided to take a hat around on that boat and they got 10 pounds. 
So when when the boat pulled in, my father couldn't work out why you'd hang your washing on top of the home or the houses, and and he had never seen a TV aerial before. So this is what I grew up with. But what was some beautiful aspects of that is that there was so much opportunity. We didn't grow up with a mindset that we were going to get a handout or or be entitled to something. You know, we had this lovely. Um, Conditioning, I guess. It's still conditioning. But you've got these resources. Use them and give back as well. We, You know, I was think I was laughing in that we were closed by Salvation Army, but probably for different reasons than what, to today's, today's hipsters. <laughs> yeah, today's hipsters. Or today's seekers yeah, of environmental absolutely. solutions. Absolutely, yeah. But what, you were closed in hand-me-downs because it was money? That was that was what, um, yeah, because we didn't have money. What In what ways was your childhood rich, if not fiscally? Absolutely. Mm. Um, rich in love. There was a sense of belonging. There was a sense of hope. And that just helped to create within that we could do things. When you went back to India, first yeah. of all, as a kid, how old were you, like 10 or something? Yeah, I was 10. What, did you, what are your memories of that experience? I have a very strong memory. Um, Claire, I remember, and this, this has impacted my work today, but I remember looking out of a car that we were in and I remember seeing face-to-face a girl who was my age or, I, I, you know, she looked my age. And I can still see her eyes and she was pulling on the side of the street and I immediately had this sense of why. And then there was this sense of how can things be so different? Um, I didn't have a sense of this is terrible. You know, I, I think that might come as you get older. But I didn't. I was a child. I was curious. I was curious as to why this girl was pulling on the side of the road. It's only as you get older that you realise... Whether you lie judgments to that. Yeah, that's right. And if you then get a bit bogged down in the inequity and the travesty of justice and and get angry about those things, you can limit your own response to them. So I was very curious, but I also did have a sense of injustice. And through the journey, I'm, I am proud to be completing a circle there. Mm. Yeah. I'm doing that thing, mm. Mm. I warned you I do that when I'm really interested. <laughs> Kat, what sort of childhood did you have? Oh, uh, I had a beautiful childhood. I just, I grew up in Sydney. I was the youngest of four and quite a big gap. I was seven years after my closest sibling, so it was an accident. What did your parents do? Mum was a stay-at-home mum, beautiful mother, and my father worked for Birdseye Petersville, which was a frozen foods mm. and canned food did organization they, did they instill in you any idea or comprehension of social justice issues did that mean anything to you as a teenager the word social justice didn't mean anything to me until quite recently but i guess i had a very christian upbringing so what was instilled in me was how bad other people in the world had it you know but the word the word social justice is a, a new was a new term for me but yeah, we were at, we were always very involved in the church and you know giving money over to the poor. Are you still involved in the church? No, no, no. You've I'm, made I'm a not... different church, <laughs> <laughs> a different kind. Yes, 
Yeah, absolutely. You studied fashion, though. I know you're a milliner. That's I just right. found that out. I didn't realise. What was yes. it about hats? Why? I love hats, oh. but it's not common. Well, I always, I guess growing up, I just, I always loved fashion. It wasn't anything that was ever encouraged in the household to pursue. And so when I left school, I wanted to study social work, but my parents said, ah, oh, it's probably, you're too young for that do that later in life when there's... Did they? How weird. Well, I guess they didn't want me to... Not weird, but how... I thought you were going to say there's no... I mean, I'm thinking how weird because what kind of strange (laughs) reaction to be like, don't do that, social work's no career, but definitely make hats. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the hats came later because I was living in London (laughs) and I wanted to... I was getting married, so I wanted to wear a hat to my wedding. So living in London, we were coming back to Brisbane for the wedding And I saw this beautiful work by a milliner called Lucy Barlow. So I met her, had the hat made, got married on my honeymoon, thought, that's what I want to pursue, millinery. So we went back to London. I did a few courses through the London College of Fashion. And then I apprenticeshiped with Lucy Barlow, who was an amazing milliner. I'm not sure what she's doing now. She probably still is. But she used that technique of stitch straw. So she had a stitch straw machine and she would mould the straw into these amazing shapes. Fascinating. And or she a saw- fascinator. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> she was a little more classy than that. <laughs> what kind of hats did you make? That, well, they were big straw hats that were sold in Harvey Nicks and Barney's and... She was amazing and she had a beautiful workshop, a little space down um, in Portobello Green off Portobello Road. So it was just such a, a thrill to go and spend my days with her. You also are a stylist. London. Yes. When did you, can talk us through that, How? in what way did you become a stylist and well, where? Well, I, I guess that was all, always my thing. I loved putting outfits together for myself, for friends. And then when we returned from London to Sydney, I worked in fashion retail, so that was I was a stylist in store. But you are a colourblind stylist. How did you find <laughs> that out? Because I am a, a oh. researcher. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> and plenty of people probably <laughs> will go, aha, that makes sense. Oh, no, <laughs> I just love the idea that we talked about this behind your back, actually, Kim and I, when I was grilling her about how you began. So I was to drop you in it. <laughs> But, like, how do you think about colour when you can't see it? Or there only certain colours you can't see? How does anyone see colour? Well, it's I don't not know. the Good kind question. of thing yeah. that you can explain to somebody what mm. colour you're seeing. So I think that That's right. colour blindness is irrelevant, really. Yeah, in right. This. What does it mean? Does it mean you can't see reds and greens? Or does it mean I don't really understand I, it? I don't really understand it either. But when you do the testing, and I was tested at, mm. you know, you do it at school yeah. in, in those senior years yeah. in science. And then when Kim told her husband, Michael, he was like, right. And he got up He's all of scientist. those. He's a scientist. So he got up yeah. on his laptop all these tests. Yeah. and made me carry them out. Yeah. And, yes, I was colourblind. So what is it about fashion in particular that floats your boat? Is it texture? Is it made by hand? Is it What is it? I'm thinking of you doing the hats with the straw. Look, it's, yeah. it is an aesthetic. It's a beauty that it's hard to explain, but it's everything about I, I love fabric and I love embroidered fabric and beaded fabric and I love mm. prints and I love the way colours are put together and I love how nature inspires all of that. So some of Slumwear's pieces actually use recycled 
or rescued old saris, mm-hmm. yes. is that right? That's right. So we were working um, with our beautiful community in India and we were sourcing fabrics that oh, I was never happy with and I thought there's got to be other options. Everybody talks about mm. the textile industry in India, but we couldn't quite find what we were looking for. And, and we were on a budget. And we, we had no money. You know, I always is... forget that bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I'm more the realist. Creativity out of scarcity. That's right. It, but we were. We absolutely, we have no budget. And so... so You've got to be resourceful. Incredibly. This is the thing, Claire. We met a businessman who has been helping us in Jaipur and he gets to know us and he just gets to know us for who we are. And so we go up to visit him one day and he said, I think I have a solution to your problem. I have a sari business, one of many of his businesses. I will take you to this place. Now, normally you have to buy the saris in huge bundles, huge, huge bundles, and 90% could be waste. Now, nothing gets wasted really in India because it just goes down the line. But he said, I'll allow you to open the bundles and you can choose by the piece. Kim... Jumping back to the story of how you got to work in Jaipur, you'd already been there, right? You were working as a teacher. That's right. In Singapore. Yeah. And that's how you came across India, right? Yeah, Claire. It was, again, I'm a teacher. I love to solve problems. I'm an economics teacher. You know, that's the basis of my subject. Uh, But I'm looking around in my school that I'm working at and my children's school. So you were in Singapore for a long time, right? Yeah, for 12 years. It was coming up to a United Nations Day where everybody, there's 50 nationalities and you bring your favourite dish and you share it. But like most events, people were starting to complain about it or not feeling the joy in it. So I thought, all right, this is a problem. We can solve this. I asked people to give me their recipe, their family recipe. I asked my husband's company if they'd print a little cookbook. It was all based on this use what you have not going to spend any more money. We don't need it to be flash. We need it to be authentic. Put together a little cookbook. We ended up selling 400 of them at $10 each, $4,000. I'd heard about this charity in Jaipur. I sent them the money and they send back a note going, thank you so much. That will help us feed 20,000 street children. 20,000. It's only 20 cents a meal to get a hot dinner lunch to a child through their services when you get those emails you just go how can I not how can we not because we all had fun too and we all got a cookbook that we loved and that day happened to be really fun and had meaning to it so it's a win-win that's the basis of a social enterprise so at what point did you think I mean I can Mm. imagine how that would make you feel and I can imagine it might make you want to have another fundraiser at the school but what made you go actually I'm gonna go there I guess I had that privilege of living in Singapore. I was five hours away. We had helpers in the home. It was possible. It was possible. <laughs> it was, but though it was possible, I guess, for every other mum there, and yet not everybody wants to do that or is in that, you know, in that mindset maybe to do it. When, you're, when your heart is opened, you go with it. You know, this is something that uh, really helps create possibility and opportunity My heart was open with that email. I said, I'll go and check it out. Did you go on your own? I went with a friend um, who in Singapore at the time. And what did you find when you arrived there um, in Jaipur? Joy. I found joy. 
I found. But uh, mm, mm. I have to just interrupt yes. you there because I'm thinking that listeners are going, okay, so what did you find there when you yeah. rocked up to the slums yes. and met the street kids? Yeah. Joy is not an obvious answer. It is when you're there. It's not if you're thinking about it from a different perspective. But when you're faced with joy, you know it. And um, so it was, look, and I'm not, uh, trust me, I'm not somebody who is just the most joyful person on earth myself. This is a journey. I was going to look at things. I had a very, you know, I had an economics background. I had trained in economic theories and problems of the world, economic development, what it's going to be like, what the solutions are supposed to be like. And here I meet a family who've been helping street kids for 20 years on a very limited budget, but immense resourcefulness. And I went, this is this is a solution. Describe yeah. what you saw there. Well, it was we had the privilege of spending time with the founders of iIndia. So we had the um, I had this great opportunity to do to have a look at all the projects. So they they took me around to the one of the ones that I really loved was there was two. One was the water bus, and the other one was the vocational training centre that Catherine was talking about. They linked, and in this space, for example, of child trafficking, child labour, and um, you know a lot within your book wardrobe crisis, how to solve this issue. Water is one of the ways because when human beings are walking for water, particularly women and the mums or children, they don't go to school or mum's gone and the children are very vulnerable. Getting clean water to human beings goes a long way to solving this problem. It's the same way when we got washing machines in our homes, it freed mum up to help kids with homework. It's again a bit of a common sense solution. Now, India took me to this shower bus. We're talking, and I was seeing this. So, what's a shower bus? They are able to get um, clean water to these children and to these women and fill up their water vessels. So, it's a tanker of clean water taken out to the rural areas so you can fill up your water. It's magnificent. This huge water jet goes on, and all these kids wash themselves. And they've got soap and they brush their teeth, and they're all laughing. Um, now Such you can a either, simple thing. It's so mm. simple. You know what's simple, Claire? <laughs> it costs two cents a person to get that water to them. So we can we can go to these United Nations conferences and discuss solutions or, or we can get involved with grassroots organisations who've been helping people on the ground for a number of, you know, for years. They know what's needed and that's what Kath and I are doing. You know, we're collaborating with people on the ground who know what is needed. Kath, you um, were just walking, as you mentioned before, on the school run, walking your kids to school when you clocked Kim. And you went, <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> that was so Australian, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that one. Um, yeah, mate. <laughs> may, might I venture that you live in a slightly Stepford Wivesy green lawned paradise? not that that's anything wrong with that but what what did you see in a kindred spirit did you look at kim and just go yeah i don't know you look like someone i need to well kim was new to new to the school and she she it was her first day it transpires and Mm -hmm. she was bringing her four kids to warrawee public school for the first time and i hadn't seen her around and i've been at the school for quite some time 
And so I wanted to make sure that she felt welcome. So we just had a brief chat. And there was a brief there, chat. It changed everything. There was a, there was a, <laughs> a feeling of ah, that I hadn't had before. It was like, oh, mm. we're back together again. And I've never experienced that feeling with anyone else. But yeah. do you know what it was, Claire? Kath turned around within the first two sentences. We had a little chat and she said, your children are going to love it here. That is an expression of gratitude because this school has grown a lot. It's a wonderful school, but really what a lot of people were talking about is how there's so many people at the school now. Kath was the, is the kindest person I know. And I just knew with that sense of your kids are going to love it here, how great for one woman, one mother to say that to another. It changes everything. And this is the kind of social justice we're talking about. Extend kindness. If you can step into that space of we've got enough for everybody, well, won't that be a great solution for some of our deeper issues when it comes to the refugees or, you know, re rehoming people? Um, just that sense of we've got enough. The whole concept of we've got enough sits in a slightly alien or slightly disconnected way mm. to conventional economic thinking. And I'm just coming back to your yeah background you've got an economics degree you taught economics to kids for more than 20 years or nearly 20 years yeah we talked before kim about what that kind of framework means where you're looking yeah. at resources as capital yes labor yes land. land yeah and then the fourth one is enterprise and if you think about it land labor and cap land labor and capital enterprise is the human element it's really it's it's near impossible to put a metric around it so traditional economics doesn't value it, yet it's the enterprise that can crack open all the possibilities, it can sustain the other resources um, tremendously. It is the application of the imaginative capacity to these limited resources that brings out the potential. So it does go against the grain, but it's about me sitting in a classroom and looking in front of me these 20 students, the greatest thing about them is their imaginative capacity. I don't really care about what they own in terms of their land, labour, capital, what car they drive. You see kids with lots of things, they don't have wellness. So, you know, we want to nurture this creativity, this what we do have within us to rise above our problems, to use what we have more effectively, that's for me. Is our economic thinking flawed and are more people looking at how yes. to, well, we know they are, but who yes. do you think or can you come up with any kinds of thinking about how we ought to flip traditional thinking around Absolutely. what makes economic success or what it's, success It's already is? flipped. Airbnb is a model. Um, Uber, is the shared economy is the model. So it's already flipped and what we are seeing is immense value in things that we have previously not valued. Oz Harvest is the most brilliant model of this new economy. What can we do with our waste? Slumware 108 is an example of what can we do with our waste from the upcycle materials to even the human beings we're working with. So many Wasted people... Wasted talent. Exactly. Mm, yeah. So many people have judged what is possible within that waste is immense potential. That's how it fits together. The new economy is here. 
you know, but more and more of us need to talk about it. We're using it. And anyone under 25, it's a no-brainer. They're in there. Are you still teaching? And I want you I want you to just maybe explain to us exactly how the Possibility Project works yeah. in schools and how you both deal with those programs or put those things together. Yeah, we are working with schools, which is fabulous. It's a very slow process. It is tricky to get into schools because there are spaces where things have been done a certain way for a long time. Social justice is a is a title in schools now, but they're still very much run under the old models of charity, you know, where you, you don a uniform for Mufti Day or you bake a cupcake. I didn't love that approach. You know, it doesn't utilise the talents of the students. Um, but say on Friday we're heading to Melbourne and we're collaborating with a lovely group down there called Moral Fairground and we're doing a Leaders of Change program. So we're going into a school on Friday and they are helping us to solve a problem we're giving them and that is to help promote mental wellness and they're going to work with our products and come up with a marketing strategy but one that's innovative we, we give them the directive of we don't want any starving child. We don't want any pity purchases. You know, the new, new ways of thinking. This is not about how much money you're going to raise. That's not on our agenda. So it's not selling all your cakes and we've raised $2,000 to give to people we don't know. That's the old model. So this new model is going into schools and working with them and working with these students to really become engaged and have a sense of purpose with what they're doing, a sense of connection, which helps our students. Selling all your cakes, right? That made me think of something that I read on your blog and I will share with listeners some links to some of these blogs because they're fabulous. But you can visit the website, which is thepossibilityproject.com.au and we're also on Insta at slumware 108 I'm just going to share this particular quote from one of the blogs. And it is, imagine what real GDP, the barometer of a nation's economic health, would look like if it included the impact of kindness and shared joy. Our work is about scaling the mindset of possibility rather than scaling the slumware range. Mm -hmm. Conventional business practice would focus on selling the product. Yeah. Sell more cakes. Do you not actually want to sell more clothes, Kath? We'd love to sell more clothes. We really would love to sell because we love our clothes and we know where they come from and we know that they're full of love and the energy is amazing, but it's not our priority. Mm. We're really about just spreading a message of awareness. It was never our intention really to be a fashion it, no, we can't. It's we, Somewhere training. is more, we call it possibility, materialised. So it is a real solution in this area and we've, we've been lucky enough to sort of now come into this field yeah. of slow clothing and be on the radar of fashion revolution. But yeah. that, that was never... And live your first. <laughs> Absolutely. And that live. was a highlight, being reposted <laughs> by Livia Perth and Claire Press. Why? Um, so I understand the thinking behind your aims and your goals for what you wanted to create with your world I'm going to call it a world <laughs> but why fashion so fashion and why slow fashion so what was it about the power of that to as a conduit for your message that attracted you well I guess for me I think we spoke or touched briefly about wanting to use our gifts to help others and so for me that's part of 
the gift that I have, I can put things together. And it was just a, a practical way that mm. we could help the vocational training centre. And it's just grown, you know, over the last three years, mm. we've seen their skills develop. You know, our first product was a caftan. You had two seams because that was kind of it. Yeah. And then slowly some pockets were introduced. Well, that was so exciting because everyone loves a pocket. Mm. And then we started working with the most beautiful pattern maker here in Sydney yeah. called Emily Hunt, and she's Emily in the Folds. And we took a few ideas of shapes to her and she digitised them and those shapes were sent to India so then we had a few more products like the beautiful mm. Freedom Frock, which is a wrap dress. Then we had the Peacemaker Jacket, which yeah. is a just beautiful product. So Is it about the power of the visual? Because I often think that that's something that is perhaps under-discussed in the thinking behind fashion, that it's such a great conduit for ideas because if you stand in front of someone wearing something that's a talking point mm -hmm. or something that ignites conversation and there's a yeah. powerful story behind it, it's easy, isn't it? It's just an easy way to communicate. It's yes. a door opener, if you like. Yeah, mm. I think that's something that we uh, are starting to realise. Well, we're not only starting to realise, but it's important to us mm. that people love the product without knowing the story mm. as well. We, we, we have a lot of people come up and ask us what we're wearing or we look good, what is it, and then we tell the story. And that's powerful. You know, it really is powerful. I think sometimes fashion can be dismissed as sort of silly women's business mm. still. Yeah. <laughs> and yet it does have this enormous economic power, but it's also a powerful tool to yes. be able yes. to pull yourself out of poverty if the work is there. Yes. Look, we've is. definitely seen massive change in cycles just over a few years. Yeah. We get emails through from iIndia telling us about some of our amazing workers. They've just bought their first block of land. In so, three years. Yeah. That's really? right. Yeah. And so it's so inspiring to keep on doing what we do because we can see it's a powerful the force. direct impact. Absolutely. It is the most powerful industry. I do want to just get back to something we touched upon earlier but we didn't delve deeply yeah. into, Kim, but you and I have talked about at length in advance, which is mm. just this idea that, you know, I just mentioned drag yourself out of poverty, but just <laughs> this idea that it's not only your affluence that drives your contentment. And mm. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit more about that because, of course, if you've got a bit more money in the bank and you don't have to stress yeah. about its lack, that's going to free up your thinking. Yeah. But it's not enough, is it? Claire, money magnifies. Money magnifies your happiness and it can magnify your woes. It is not a solution. You know, I taught about the poverty cycle and it was it was based on this miracle prescription that if only we can get income to people, everything's going to be solved. We know ourselves, we hear about people who win lotteries and over one year, you know, one year's time, they are no better off in terms of their overall happiness or well-being. And many say they actually prefer if they didn't win it. We know this. Desperate housewives. I watched that. Yeah. <laughs> Not happen. <laughs> That's right. We also know that in our culture, in our communities, many of our kids are struggling. We live in an affluent community and many of the kids are struggling. It's not related to, you know, this is the issue. Um, money does not make you happy. Well, children are more stressed, aren't they? I can't remember the statistics, but you often they read them. Mm. And even understanding the word stress when they're very little. Yeah, 
that's the beauty of being in slums, that there is so much joy, there is so much happiness. You you see it in these teenagers in the slums and, and they, they have nothing but they are so happy. They're in this amazing community that's full of life mm. and full of heart. In our communities back here, you just, it is just lacking in that joy. And yeah, I mean, it's hard to have these conversations without sounding like a privileged mm-hmm. woman, isn't it? Thinking, well, oh, the joy of the slums. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you'd be happier if you had less disease and a decent chair to sit on, wouldn't you? Where's the tipping point? So what's the, I mean, that's mm-hmm. such a hard question. It's but a hard at what question. Point do you... What we are often asked to describe is how do you move from the slums and come back to your suburb? Um, how does that feel? And the one thing that Catherine and I always talk about is gratitude. Gratitude for us is an expression of uh, it's an expression of just loving what you have, and that cracks open a lot for us. We love what we have here. There is no guilt uh, attached to what we have. We've all worked for it. We've worked hard. We work cleverly. Um, with some limited resources as well. But we have this deep sense of joy for what we have. And that's what we also see in India. They have a a deep sense of connection with each other, which sustains them. Of course, we want to help to bring basic needs. We need to address and advocate for human rights um, issues very strongly. What we're proposing, that when you yourself live in a space of gratitude, loving what you have, not feeling guilty or unworthy for what you have, you're better equipped then to change things. You didn't always feel like that, Kim. I didn't. I know that you have, I don't know if the word is suffered because it seems like such a strong <laughs> word, suffered. <laughs> it is traumatic. But yes. I hate it when people say battled as well. Yes. Always battled. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But you have experienced mental health issues yes. in your past. Yeah, you haven't yeah. always felt joy and light. No. How did you flip that around for yourself? Ooh. <laughs> you know, Claire, I did struggle with depression and it's on reflection that for me, depression is how far was my mind from my heart? That for me was a depression. I have an amazing husband who's in pharmaceuticals. I knew that, um, you know, he works on antidepressants and that I was well aware of the power of medicine and it's fabulous. And it has also given me a great lifestyle. But I also had this knowingness that that there was another way. I just had a knowingness. I don't know what that was, but I needed to pursue that other way. And that other way was, it was a bit harder actually, because it's like looking at yourself and going, what is it? And then there's some skills. Yoga and meditation were fantastic, fantastic tools of connecting back to myself. And the Possibility Project is very much of what did I learn in those processes and and how can I share? And it's not to convert and it's mm-hmm. not to preach. It's just, again, to, to demonstrate there are other ways. It's the same with fashion. We would never tell people what they should wear, what they shouldn't wear. Oh, God, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, you can. You, but I guess job. for us, um, <laughs> that is your job. <laughs> No, it's not, again, it's not judging what people wear because I think you then, you open yourself up 
to criticism or or judgment yourself. Well, the fashion industry can be heinously judgmental. Yeah. And heinously yes. negative. And actually, for all its joy and levity, which I love and which yeah. I try to tap into, the industry itself can be pretty horrendous harsh world mm. yeah telling models are too fat telling yeah. everyone they're too old yeah telling yes. people they're not the right shape or the right color or they're yeah. not right wearing the right hem length yeah mm. but you don't i guess you don't, well, no, con- what you don't concern yourselves with any of that what do you the response to that is when you're when you strengthen yourself in knowing who you are those comments become less painful painful you know, when you you've stepped into your enoughness, you are, you then have some space. I'm gonna make a hashtag enoughness. That's that's it. <laughs> that's it, Claire. You know, because it, we don't think people are unkind; they're just unaware if they're saying things. Absolutely. You know, and we know that we 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 aren't we're growing to understand this. Um, we're getting more sophisticated at this. It's why I love social media because it is pushing us into a space of actually becoming aware that's their opinion it's not your truth hashtags was something i mentioned in a glib way but it is something i find interesting because you two don't use those very popular hashtags sustainable ethical female empowerment that's right so you could use those hashtags to describe what you do and i would think it would be accurate but you choose not to talk to us a little bit about why well, I guess we're just, we're not into labels. Yeah. We're really not into labelling anything. We want to break down, if anything, labels. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to, I guess in fashion, no one wants to be told that they're a pear shape. or You know, no ethical, sustainable, they serve a purpose, but they don't work for us because we just want to spread a message of oneness. And in oneness, there isn't any, mm. there's no labels. No value judgments. And it's also to do just with our life experiences. Say, for example, there is a very important focus on female empowerment. Without doubt, we, we need to address many issues there. But on the ground, for example, in India, our boys shelter, and a lot of the boys make Slumway 108, they have not had funding for three years because people are donating money and saying, this has to go to the girls. I have two sons and two daughters. I don't parent them as genders. I parent them as human beings and and you're pretty much, you're the same. So we don't address our issues as female or male. I don't talk to my girls about a glass ceiling. I actually observe the greatest danger to them is the mirror and they're in control of that. So it's it is why we don't use the hashtags, but we ha- we know and respect and admire so many hardworking people in these spaces of sustainability, fair trade, ethical trade. Admire them immensely. It doesn't mean you have to use it. That's all. I love it. This is a completely different direction, but I want to ask you about the film that you're involved with. Oh, Land Philharmonic. It's a stunning film. It's a beautiful feature-length documentary and it's based around a landfill in Paraguay and a beautiful man comes in to help with recycling in this Mm. this landfill situation, which doesn't go to plan, but what he then develops is this beautiful orchestra for the kids 
they don't have any instruments, so their instruments are all then made out of landfill. I watched the trailer and it's just <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? This story has appeared on international news channels and yes. people have written about it. It's been on, I don't yeah. know, CNN, whatever it was. But I'd never come across it. And to see those instruments. Yes. Oh, it's wow. extraordinary. To see a high heel in the violin. Yes. I didn't see yes. that. Yeah. I didn't see a that. Fork. Oh, you can. Yeah. Because we're <laughs> showing it. <laughs> oh, it's an extraordinary film. And it really, it, it demonstrates the power of creativity within your waist and how mm. to rise above adversity and also very powerful the um the the issue that the guy goes in to try and solve it's a complete failure mm. but he doesn't walk away he stands in that space and goes well what can i do and that's what possibility is about that's the big difference between possibility and positivity and i guess referencing back to um this area of mental wellness there's a huge difference we're not all made to be positive we're not all innately positive but every human being has the ability to see possibility um, and so we want to be one of those um, advocates of that you know and help demonstrate that so again with that film we we got the rights to that and we contacted city recital hall in sydney amazing venue and now they're screening it with us uh, in september september mm. 10th which is phenomenal. And I should just point out that Kim and Catherine didn't direct or make this film, but they did speak at an event where the film was being screened and then they were so captivated by the idea mm. of the story that they then acquired the rights to distribute it here. Yeah. In Australia. Yeah, we can screen it here. Yeah. And, that's, um, and we're doing that. You know, it is to, to really help people to look at this film and, and identify with others because on how I to rise you. above adversity. Because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you Jack Rabbit FM For your ears Who is that? Hi Puck Pass <laughs>